so one key lesson that I learned really early on was that it's so much easier to get into a bad real estate investment than it is to get out of one. And if you can do anything to do yourself a favor, it's not to get into a bad real estate investment. Really look closely at what you're setting out to do and make sure that you know, you've got a plan for success and a viable exit uh, so you don't get stuck. Welcome to Podcast for Patriots. I'm your host, Jim Fralick, and this is show number seven. I ain't rich, but I damn sure want to be. Working like a dog all day ain't working for me. I wish I had a rich uncle that'd kick the bucket and I was sitting on a pile like Warren Buffett. I know everybody says money can't buy happiness. But it can buy me a boat. Our goal here with Podcast for Patriots is to educate, inspire, and assist military members and veterans in achieving financial wealth through real estate investing. Super excited and privileged today to be introducing you to Brian Burke. Brian is the president and CEO of Praxis Capital. It's a vertically integrated real estate private equity firm that operates on multiple platforms. They manage active syndications for the acquisition of multifamily, single family, and opportunistic residential assets in the U.S. growth markets. Brian has acquired over $400 million in real estate over a 30-year real estate investment career, which we'll dig into a little bit. And that includes over 2,500 multifamily units and more than 700 single-family homes with the assistance of, get this, proprietary software that he wrote himself. Uh, This guy's done it all. He's subdivided land, built homes, constructed self-storage, and is a recognized expert. So you've probably seen him speak at different real estate forums or conferences across the country. And you may have heard him as co-host and real estate expert on the Fox News radio show, The Best of Investing. So Brian, can you hear me? I gotcha. All right. Thank you, sir. And I should have added uh, what's really brought you to my doorstep. Like I said, it's a privilege to have you here today is from having uh, connected Jay Henricks on Bigger Pockets, where I noticed uh, you were involved in a heroeshome.org nonprofit that aims to help out veterans and first responders with property. I'll let you talk a little more about that, but I should have added to your background which uh, is really varied and super interesting that you did 14 years in law enforcement and as a firefighter and an EMT. (laughs) On top of all that, I know you fly planes and helicopters I don't know how you fit all that in, but definitely wonder if you'll take a minute or two and tell us about uh, your career, maybe with a little bit about your first responder career and how you got into real estate and where you're at today. Geez, you know, with all that intro, I, I think I need to get a hobby. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Not enough time in the day. <laughs> I know, right? You know, and it's like some of this stuff I've been doing for so long. I, I got my pilot's license back when I was in high school, actually. I was taking flying lessons after class. Uh, spending all the money that I, I earned on my job bagging groceries at the time. So it was, uh, and, and here I am still out there flying, turned into actually be kind of a cool thing for my real estate business because, you know, what I found, you know, being out here in California, real estate's really super expensive. And I'm in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, it's even worse here. And, you know, eventually I started finding that it was difficult to invest in my own backyard. I needed to go outside of 
kind of the, the closer in areas to find good real estate investments. And the pilot's license really came in handy because it shrinks your world. It enabled me to, uh, you know, fly to other counties and, you know, other areas that would have taken half a day to drive there. I could get there in an hour and still be home in time for dinner after, you know, going and checking out investments all day long. So, uh, it's funny how one thing leads to another in this business. And, you know, when, when you're a high school student taking flying lessons, you aren't thinking that someday that's going to help you out in business. <laughs> uh, you never know. You never know for sure. So I wonder, can you expand a little bit? I know it's a lot. Can you squeeze it into a minute or two in terms of how you get from point A to point B to point C uh, along the way and how those kind of uh, came together? I'll tell you how I did it is uh, I always had an interest in investing in real estate. You know, one of the benefits of you know, being in the law enforcement business is that was a, you know, a nights and weekends job, basically. You know, I was working swing shift with Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off. So I could just, I basically had the whole business week off. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all day and Thursday and Friday. I think uh, I'd be at work at four o'clock. So I had a lot of time during the week to dedicate to hunting down real estate and trying to learn this business. And that's really where I started. You know, the first property I bought was just this little single family home that got a finance company to give me a loan. I got the seller to carry back the down payment. So I basically got it with no money down, bought it as a rental. I didn't even own my own house yet. That was my first real estate investment. I never looked back, you know, just uh, ever since then I've been doing it. Started out, you know, after that first rental, I, I went into you know, flipping homes, just buy, fix up and resell. Did that for about a decade, uh, all while still working the job. And then finally, I, the business just started to grow and I was noticing that it was just getting in the way. You know, the job was getting in the way of um, of the real estate business. And, you know, that was when I knew it was time to, to give it up. Man, I got to tell you, it's really a tough decision to, to give up government job with benefits and vacation and retirement and all that stuff and venture off into business. Um, but that's exactly what I did. And when I did it, I told everybody at the station, I said, guys, I, I put in my two weeks notice and I'm going to go do this real estate thing. And by the way, I, I'm going to actually uh, reserve the room over at the community center. I, I want you guys to come down. I'm going to tell you everything I'm doing in real estate. And so they all did and packed wow. the room full full of a bunch of coworkers or former coworkers, as the case may be. And uh, I gave this little dog and pony show about real estate and what I was doing and said, you know, gosh, if you guys want to invest with me, you can. I said, I'll take a little as $5,000 investment in this little LLC that I formed. And for five years, I'll use that money to, to buy homes at the foreclosure auction and fix them up and resell them. And I'll be damned if I didn't walk out of that room with $500,000 in investment commitments from 28 investors carrying guns. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That is a cool story right there. That is, uh, that's obviously a testament to credentials and integrity you built up before that point for that group of people to uh, trust you. With some of their savings, not known to be, you know, highest paying jobs in the, in the world, you know, just like military, uh, law enforcement. Yet they took uh, chunks of their money and, and turned it over to you with trust on your way out the door. That's amazing. Enormous risks. I mean, you know, I, I was responsible for some of my friends' kids' uh, college money. You know, that's that was an enormous responsibility. So, you know, there's basically a couple things I think come out of this story. One thing that came out of it for me is that. I learned very early on that preservation of capital trumps everything else because the last thing I wanted to do, lose these people's money because if I did that, any one of them was going to kill me and they knew how to do it and they knew how to get away with it. So that was, 
Oh, no. <laughs> you know, le- lesson one is, uh, you know, if you're going to get into the uh, business of managing other people's money, uh, always make sure that you uh, you treat it as if your life depends on it. And for me, it actually did. Uh, the second thing that comes out of it, I think, is, you know, it's a key takeaway for, for your listeners is when you're going to invest in real estate and you don't have the money to do it yourself and you want to get money from others to help with your real estate investment business, you know, well, first, you know, take the money seriously because, you know, your life could depend on it too. But second, you'll notice that I was successful in raising this money because I knew all of these people. You know, they had known me for 14 years. We'd worked together. They'd seen what I was doing. There was a lot of trust there. So there were two things that, there were two key points here. One is uh, I had a bit of a track record. I had bought, fixed, and resold about two dozen homes by the time that I went, uh, you know, brought this brought this concept. So I had been successful in doing that and everybody knew it. So that was one, was having a track record. The second was that, you know, these people already trusted me because they knew me. And a lot of people try to go and get investment capital from investors that they don't know and wonder why it's so difficult or why they failed to get any investors and why they're not succeeding. And it's just because you're fishing from the wrong pond. And, you know, you've got to create an inner circle and and that's really that friends and family is going to be your source of capital when you want to launch a real estate business or grow or expand a real estate business. And, uh, you know, you can't just go from having never bought a property to all of a sudden you're going to go and find a bunch of accredited investors to uh, to fund your deals. So I think those are the key takeaways out of that story. Absolutely true. And I appreciate, I appreciate you sharing those uh, two items. It uh, makes perfect sense. What I'm wondering if now you could do for the listeners that I like to start early on in my podcast with an early warning. Early warning systems online. General quarters, general quarters, man your battle stations. This is not a drill. Repeat, this is not a drill. I think mine would be, uh, you know, when I was early on in this business, you know, real estate to me was almost like being a kid in a candy store. You know, I'd go to some of these areas and go, my gosh, there's just great deals everywhere. You know, and this is this is great. After a while, you learn it's not really that great. And if you find great deals everywhere, there's probably a reason. And and that's this is the lesson I learned the hard way is that, you know, when you go to a new area and you think everything's a bargain, it's a bargain for a reason. You know, either that economy isn't performing well or there's no other buyers. And if there's no other buyers, that means that when you go to sell, there's no buyers for you. And so one key lesson that I learned really early on was that it's so much easier to get into a bad real estate investment than it is to get out of one. And if you can do anything to do yourself a favor, it's not to get into a bad real estate investment. Really look closely at what you're setting out to do and make sure that you know, you've got a, a, a plan for success and a viable exit uh, so you don't get stuck. Because being stuck is painful. I've had properties I've been stuck with for over 15 years. You can't get rid of them. And uh, you just never want to be in that position. Awesome. Awesome early warning. I love it. And it goes along well with, with the two points you made about your your first um, syndications, if you will, and partnerships where you wanted to preserve capital. If you don't do the bad deal, you're way better off than doing a deal and losing. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot easier to lose a million dollars than it is to make a million dollars a lot easier. So, you know, treat, uh, you know, your, your listener base 
lot of first responders out here, they'll understand this. You know, you, you got to treat real estate like a loaded weapon. And, you know, don't stare down the barrel. Um, you just need to make sure that, you know, you're, you're treating it like it, it could kill you. Because, in a sense, it can. Copy. That makes sense. So, uh, Brian, I want to ask you, the way I like to think of areas in terms of buckets and you have a broader view than most people and, and definitely more than me, but uh, I'd like to think most people are generally divided up into like opportunity-based, uh, geographically-based, asset class-based, or a certain niche. And I wonder amongst those four, or maybe all the above or none, how do you come to focus on your area, if you can? And it is, you know, pretty broad, I guess. Or what, you know, what do you, why do you favor one of those over the other? Well, I'll tell you, I, I favor what works for the first, um, you know, 10 years, maybe the first 12 or 13 years I was in this business. I, w- I was a flipper. I was in and out. Uh, I didn't, you know, I, I'm in California. So, you know, our market's a little weird out here. Prices are really high. Price to rent ratios are kind of a little crazy. So, I didn't really believe very heavily in the rental uh, in, in rental as a strategy. I found a way that I could use arbitrage as a strategy by buying low, fixing up, and selling high. But I, I wasn't really a subscriber to you know just buy, rent out, hold, and wait for appreciation that kind of stuff. Having said that, our market collapsed in two thousand. Five through 2007, it was falling precipitously during that period. And, you know, home prices were tanking. And, you know, I was really glad I was in the flipping business because, you know, I wasn't a long-term holder. So I didn't have a ton of stuff where, you know, I was taking a huge hit. I certainly had some because I was just, you know, uh, about five years before the market collapsed, I had bought some stuff, stopped buying it about three years before the market collapsed, but still there's some stuff I was holding. You know, I still had it because it was going to be something I was going to hold probably for a lifetime and you know, took a bath on that stuff. But by and large, I was just really glad to be in the flipping business. Uh, after the market collapsed here, though, my view changed and I saw a real opportunity in buying single family homes to rent out. And, you know, our prices here, I was literally buying stuff for 30 cents on the dollar from its peak pricing. I could look back in the history, look at the price I paid, and look at the last time that it traded for a price like that, and it was in the 1980s. Wow. So I, I literally set the clock back 30 years and was buying real estate you know, 30 years ago, you know? but I was doing it today, and this was you know, 10 years ago when I was doing this. We collected a massive portfolio of single-family rental homes, got around 120 of them in the San Francisco Bay Area at the very bottom of the market. And, you know, that was a shift of strategy. And it was because I saw that there was opportunity there. Uh, it was different than the flipping strategy. And and then, uh, you know, the market rose. House prices, you know, went up about two and a half times in the following five, six, seven years. And we started selling all those rental homes. And, uh, you know, so now we're almost completely out of the single family business. We still do a little bit of house flipping. We still have a few rentals left, but our focus right now is on multifamily and, you know, multifamily is a business that I've, I've been in to some extent since 2003 and really grew it, uh, in the last, uh, you know, eight to 10 years 
much beyond where we were before the market collapse uh, in the multifamily side, primarily because I see that it has a lot of runway left. It has, uh, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's sustainable in a lot of different, you know, kind of economic climates. And so multifamily is really the core source of uh, focus of our business. And we're doing it all over the country in very specific markets. So as you'll notice by telling this whole story, it's a really long answer to kind of what should probably have been a simple question is that we change our strategy and we change our location depending upon where there's opportunity. We can't change our timing, although we can time when we change our strategy and when we change our our, uh, our location. But Mother Nature is in charge of time. So all we can do is go where the opportunity is in the sector that that opportunity presents itself, and that's what we do. Well, thank you. That that was actually a beautiful answer. I love it. <laughs> it, was, it was essentially a clinic on the question uh, because you covered uh, the gamut of, of how you started and you were focused on flips. I imagine that was uh, geographic-based uh, to a large degree. It is a certain niche. And then based on opportunity, you switched and you were flexible and then you diversified and then you end with multi-units right now. But again, it's this it's this point in time and place and I'm sure there are risks. Uh, a lot of this is about risk assessment and how you came to that. So I think that's a, a great answer, and uh, that's why I call it a clinic. Okay, Brian, I'd like to uh, dig down in a little bit on, on your answer because uh, I was definitely intrigued by some of the things you said. And w- one thing that caught my attention was you bought all those single-family homes after the market bottomed out, bought obviously at some type of rapid pace, and then you sold after the prices went up on those uh, rentals. And I was thinking about uh, a multi-unit a syndicator named Rod Khalif that I've listened to a few times on podcasts. And he kind of went in the opposite direction. He had, I think, I want to say 700 single family homes in Florida and then lost all of that. And he, he was only 30% leveraged on those, someone said in one of my earlier podcasts. And then he switched to multi-units full-time. My question for you is a little blend of that. What do you think about single family rental investments in general, between the bottom to the mid-market to the top and areas and how much leverage is acceptable? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I know Rod and I, I know his story and, you know, man, the, the guy certainly felt some pain and knows what it feels like to uh, get caught in a market cycle. And I, I certainly had my share of pain then too. You know, we had some properties that, you know, as the market was tanking and certainly not a fun place to be, no question about it. And so, you know, the question comes up frequently, like, well, where are we in the cycle now? Is now a good time to go out and buy a bunch of houses? And, you know, or am I going to get caught up in a crash? Or, you know, how much leverage should I put on? And I think, you know, I knew it was time to get out of this market when you go to the real estate club events and people are like, oh my gosh, I've got to buy a rental house. You know, I'm thinking like, okay, well, they're $550,000 and they rent for $1,500 a month. So that doesn't really seem to work. And then they're going like, yeah, I can get 100% financing with no money down with, you know, this floating rate loan. And, and it's like, well, that math doesn't work. And then, you know, the reason that they're able to kind of make it work is because it has negative amortization. So actually some of the interest is stacking onto the end of the loan, which, you know, one day that you're going to pay the piper there. And then all all that, after having said all of that, they're still having running a $600 a month negative cash flow. And the rationale was, yeah, but geez, you know, the value is going up a hundred grand a year. 
So, you know, you know, I can lose, you know, $7,200 in negative cash flow in a year because I'm making 100000 in appreciation. You know, when you start hearing that story time and again, you know there's a problem. That's when I just, I threw my hands up in the air and said, that's it. I'm not buying anything. And literally from like 2004 until 2007, I think I bought four properties a year during that period. And they were all flips and I was in and out of all of them quickly. Okay. And and then, you know, because that whole time the market was falling. So it went, you know, our, our median price here in our area went from, you know, the mid 600s to, you know, the high 200s in, in about a two years time. I think, so now people look at, you know, well, is that going to happen again? You know, if I start buying rental homes now, is that going to happen again? And certainly all real estate is local and different things happen in different areas. And I think the answer is likely not. You know, when that, that was a once in a lifetime event, in my opinion, fueled by just completely idiotic lending. You know, you didn't have to have any income. You didn't have to have a job and you could get a hundred percent financing uh, with negative amortization and, you know, and all this stuff. And, you know, these loans were, they were never going to be viable. And that just overinflated the market. What's different in this market that I see is that there's a lot more cash transactions, a lot more, you know, reasonable down payment transactions. What I'm seeing is the market seems to be being built on stronger foundations, which I think that gives a little bit better odds that that type of cataclysmic event doesn't repeat itself this time around. Having said that, you, you got to still take a defensive strategy. And, you know, it's, you know, for your first responders and, you know, law enforcement guys, military, you know, the officer safety is key. And, and you've got to protect your own back. And the way you do that in, in this realm is you've got to keep your leverage to a point where your property is positively cash flowing, even if you have to eat some vacancy or even if you had to lower your rent a little bit. Because when the economy turns against you, there's a good chance you're going to have vacancies and there's a good chance you might not be able to re-rent it at the same price you had it rented for before. So if you can take that kind of a defensive stance, I think you're fine buying single family homes. Now, just set reasonable expectations. Don't think that the price is going to double in five years. It's not likely to do that. Again, it did that already, but it's not likely to do it again. So I think if you've got the right expectations and the right approach to leverage, uh, you know, there's um, there's still a, a real reason to be in real estate. Good answer. Thank you for that. So I'm wondering if you can, uh, if you could paint at what a good deal looks like to you today. I mean, if you have specific numbers on a recent deal, uh, that'd be great. But I just think it would be interesting to listeners to see someone that's sort of playing at your level, if you will, point out what a what a good deal would look like to you. A good deal to me is going to look much different than a good deal to someone that's getting started in this business. And, you know, because anything that we're buying now is typically over 100 units. So, you know, we're buying, uh, you know, right now we're, we're closing, you know, over the coming days here on 539 units. And, you know, to us, this is a really good deal. It's a $41 million deal. It's just a, it's a really good opportunity. And what, what makes it look good for us is the return. And so, you know, we're calculating out an internal rate of return on our investors' capital. And if we can produce for our investors a projected return, or if we can project for our investors at least a, uh, a 14 to 15% return, we know that our investors are going to show up to the party and fund that deal with us. And then if we can produce that return, which we feel that we can because of the way we, we like to underwrite, uh, if we can produce that return, that's a really good deal for us. Now, that's totally different than what somebody that's going to be going out and making their first, second, or 10th real estate investment is going to see as being a good deal. 
And what that looked like for me and still does when we're playing in the single family space, and we still do some single family flips in, in that world, if I can buy the property for what it's worth when I'm done with it times 0.8 minus the cost that it's going to cost me to renovate the property to get it in that condition. So you're talking after renovated price times 0.8. So you've got a 20% margin minus the cost of renovation. If you can do that, you can buy that house, fix it up and resell it and make profit almost every time. Assuming that you get the price that you forecasted and that your repair costs came in at the number that you forecasted. If you're looking to buy something to, if you're looking to buy something to rent, uh, you just want positive cash flow. Uh, how much positive cash flow? That's up to you. Uh, if you don't, if you don't need much positive cash flow and you're just trying to grow your asset base and accumulate real estate, just make sure it's positive. Don't be these guys that bought $600 a month negative cash flow and lost it all. Don't be that guy. But if you if you do need the cash flow, then you have to back into how much cash flow you need, how much capital you can part with to get it. Uh, and that's how you back into your purchase price. Okay, sure. Well, thanks for that. It was a two for answer for a little bit for everybody, you know, the flip, the rental and the large syndication. So uh, on each of those, I want to take that a little step further. So the so 0.8 times the ARV after repair value minus the uh, repair cost, and that sort of is a good number for you with flips. I had been going with like I've heard 0.7 and 0.75, but um, 0.8 uh, seems to be a number that's worked for you in the past. Uh, obviously, like depends you said, on your you gotta, market. Yeah, you got to have yeah, good. Yeah, depends on your market. So so like there's some. Are fixed costs. So if you're in a market where prices are really low, 0.7 is your is probably your number. So my kind of my rule basically is anything over two hundred thousand dollars ARV, the 0.8 seems to work. Okay, excellent. Now on the syndication side, I want to ask you a real quick question: the 14, 15 percent IRR. So we do have several listeners know that I my main focus is raising capital for syndications, and so most of those deals, uh, there may be one development deal on the table right now, but most of them are uh, value add. So like your 539 units, is that one where you're going to go in and force some appreciation? What looks good in terms of annualized returns? And do you do preferred returns as well? Yeah. So, you know, most of what we're going to do is going to have a value add component in some respect, whether it's improving management or or improving the physical plant. One way or another, we're making some kind of improvements. You know, this current project is actually a little bit unique because we've got basically three different value add components. One is making management improvements. The other is that we're actually acquiring two different properties from two different sellers that are located adjacent to one another and are connected to one another. So now what we're going to do is when we, you know, when we control both assets is we can run them as one property. So instead of having two staffs and two offices, we'll be able to have one office and one staff. So it's an incredible value add by adding to economy of scale. And then we also improve the units by uh, upgrading the interiors, upgrading the exterior amenities, enhancing curb appeal, and then just general overall management enhancements. And between all of those different things, there's an incredible value add component where we're adding a ton of value to the uh, income stream and by virtue of having done that to the um, to the underlying value of the property. In terms of you know IRR and annualized return, uh, you know the easiest way for me to explain this is like an annualized return is essentially useless, and I say that because 
it doesn't account for so many different variables. And basically, to calculate an annualized return, you take the total profit divided by, or you divide that by the amount you invested, and then you divide that result by the number of years uh, that you held the investment. What what it doesn't account for is it doesn't account for the timing of the cash flow. So like if you got, let's say you got the cash flow evenly divided over the like a five-year hold, for example, and you made $500,000 and you got $100,000 a year for five years, it would it, that would yield the same exact annualized return as if you held it for five years with no cash flow and got $500,000 all at the sale. What IRR does is it recognizes that difference in timing and if you got $100,000 a year, it would be a higher IRR than if you got $500,000 in year five. Okay. So that's the advantage of IRR is you can, you, if you were comparing two different investments side by side, both making 500 grand and one you're getting it, you know, over time and the other all at the end, you know, you could see a different IRR between those two investments, although the annualized return between the two would have been identical. Another place where IRR is helpful is uh, if you do a cash out refinance and let's say you pull money out at the end of the third year and you got half your money back. And now you only have half as much invested in year three or year four and year five. So now how are you calculating your annualized return when you only had half your capital still in the deal for a little bit less than half of the entire life cycle of the investment? You know, when that kind of situation happens, annualized return just flat out fails. But IRR will account for both positive and negative cash flows and the timing of those positive and negative cash flows. And that's why IRR is really the gold standard when you're comparing one opportunity against another. Hard for me to comment on what I think is a good annualized return because I just I just don't use that number and we don't even calculate it. But in terms of an IRR, you know, what we know is that if we can get into that mid-teens range, uh, we know that our investors will show up to the party. Uh, and you know, for a really high quality asset, we could probably even uh, project lower and still get people to come to the party. And that's the beauty of IRR. It's, uh, it kind of takes everything into account. Great, great explanation. I really appreciate you giving that. And one other thing on that was do, within that, do you generally give a preferred return to investors? We do. You know, every deal structure is a little bit different. So, you know, when we when we raised money for our, you know, single family um buy and hold fund, uh, we did not issue, we did not have a preferred return to the investors. It was just a straight profit split. And the investors showed up for that. And we, uh, you know, we raised enough money to buy $15 million worth of houses. We sold those houses for about $45 million, you know, five or five and a half, six years later. And our investors got net about a 20, well, I think one fund was just over a 25% IRR. Another one was about 24% IRR. And we're about to close out the third fund. I haven't calculated the IRR yet, but it's going to be over 20. On the other hand, on a multifamily, you know, value add in that strategy, we nearly always will have a pref. And generally speaking, our preferred return is going to be an eight percent pref. And and you know what an eight what a preferred return is for for the listeners that don't really know is the a preferred return just means you get a hundred percent of the cash flow until you reach that threshold, and the sponsor gets nothing until you've reached that threshold. That's what a preferred return is. You know that that just kind of it tilts the balance in favor of the investor so that you know if the investment is only mediocre. Uh, you know, the sponsor really took a haircut, but the investor did okay. Um, you know, if the deal really screams and the investor did great, and the sponsor will do great. 
Uh, and, and that's kind of the purpose of the PREF, to slant the returns in favor of the investor when the deal um, you know, is only lackluster. Thanks for explaining that, Brian. So one thing I wanted to, to pivot to now is uh, sort of back to the beginning. People are new. Most people listening to this will be just getting into investing. Uh, some people might not have a bunch of cash built up. Some people might not have great credit. I wonder what advice you might have in terms of way forward for people or like if you were in the very beginning, how you might do it today. So how I, how I might, uh, how I might uh, invest if I was a passive investor or as an investment sponsor? I'll say go back to the beginning, go back, just uh, average middle-class guy and you're thinking about to get in real estate. Would you do it exactly the same way you did, I guess, if you were advising people today to just get into some flips, Gosh, rentals? You know, what do you think? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a hard one. You know, I I'll tell you, I took the path I did cuz I had no option. You know, I didn't have any money. I mean, I literally had nothing when I first got into real estate. That's why I bought my first property with no money down. And then, you know, I had to fix it up, you know, I didn't have to put much money into it, but what I did, I had to put on my credit cards. I mean, I just had no other option. And, you know, when I was I had to I had to sell uh, just because I, I couldn't hold them. You know, I had to fix them up and resell them. That was really the only option I had, and that's why I did what I did. So, you know, I'm just a believer in you got to kind of pick apart your position and what you're capable of and mold your strategy around that. You know, if you've got some capital and you can tie it up in real estate for a while and, you know, and you can find some rental properties that uh, that you can effectively oversee. Nothing wrong with getting into this business as a, as a, as a landlord, you know, if that's not in the cards for you, but you know, you know that you can scrounge up enough money to buy a house and fix it up and resell it. And that's probably about as much as you're going to be able to pull off at first. Do that. You know, and I, people, uh, it's funny. I hear people all the time go like, yeah, I've never invested in real estate, but I want to go buy a hundred unit apartment building and get a bunch of people together to, you know, to fund the down payment for me. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is a recipe for disaster. And you're setting yourself up to fail. Just kind of structure your strategy within your means, your capabilities, your skill set. There's no right answer and there's no wrong answer. Everybody is in a different situation and you've got to be able to recognize that and, and pivot to what works for you. Good answer. Great answer. I want to ask you a little bit about the the nonprofit that you're involved in and what, what that's about, a, a Hero's a Home. A Hero's Home. A Hero's Home. Yeah, it's, uh, the website is aheroeshome.org. And it's, uh, our, it's our uh, nonprofit uh, charity, A Hero's Home, Inc. We, um, I got involved with this. Uh, Jay Heinrichs, who's a, you know, he's a well-known real estate investor in the, in the Bigger Pockets community. Everybody there knows him. He did a thing a while back where he gave away a house on, uh, on the website. Basically, people could submit their story as to why uh, he wanted you know, he should give them the house. And, you know, the idea was it was a really run down house and they could fix it up and resell it. And it would be really rewarding for him to be able to do that for somebody trying to make a, to make their way into real estate invest. But at the end of the day, he found that, you know, it, it uh, while it was a, a, a great thing that he did, it, it wasn't as rewarding to him as what he would have hoped to, hoped to have felt. And he thought, you know, there's got to be a way that we can make a real difference in someone's life in a really meaningful way. And, you know, how can how can we do that? And, you know, let's pick, you know, someone that has really done something for us as a country and for us as a society. And, you know, he came up with this concept for a hero's home that we would acquire 
a house, completely renovate it and fix it up, have it paid off free and clear, and we would award that property to a uh, a deserving uh, member of the United States military, veteran, or first responder. That cause really resonated with me uh, because of my background in, in law enforcement and fire and EMS. And, uh, you know, he asked me if I would be involved in it, and it took me about half a second to say absolutely. We, uh, we started this uh, on Memorial Day of last year, and we've been raising money ever since, just as little at a time. And we're about halfway to our goal. We've uh, we've got a great team of guys that helped put this thing together. Uh, we have an attorney and an accountant who donated their services for free to form the company and get the 501c3. And what that means is that every dollar that's been contributed to this charity is going towards this house that we're providing, and none of it was spent on admin and overhead. And uh, that's, uh, that's really important to us. And, you know, Jay and I, we've donated our time and, uh, you know, we're just uh, marching forward towards uh, getting this thing fully funded and looking forward to the day when uh, we get to hand the keys over. That is uh, fabulous. Super. So glad that you're doing it and so glad uh, I ran into it and I'm looking forward to uh, helping in any way I can uh, along the way getting involved in uh, this is a very meaningful effort. So appreciate uh, what you did while you had a uniform on and appreciate what you're doing now. Well, we sure, uh, we, we sure appreciate, you know, everything that, uh, that the men and women are out there doing to, to keep this country safe. And, you know, this is, this is uh, the least we can do as real estate investors. We've been fortunate to be able to have a lot of good things happen in our lives. And uh, to the extent that we can help share those gifts, it's a, uh, it's a great position to be in, and it's uh, it's absolutely worthy cause. And I'd hope that anybody that hears this uh, goes to a heroeshome dot org and and makes their donation to to help us get all the way to the goal line, uh, so we can uh, the sooner we get there, the sooner we get to to turn those keys over, and that's going to be a great day. Absolutely, looking forward to it, and I'm definitely going to keep spreading the word. So thanks again for that, Brian. So we're getting close to wrapping it up here. I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I do want to ask you: Do you happen to have a uh, favorite business or real estate book that has inspired you along the way or taught you the most about investing? Gosh, you know, it's uh, funny. I get this question all the time and I, I haven't read a book and I don't even know how many years it seems like. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the the one that stands out the most to me is the one that probably stands out to probably 80% of the people that are in the the position that I'm in. And uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad was a huge influence for me Absolutely. Uh, when I was trying to find my way. And uh, it didn't tell me how to do anything, but it sure taught me a lot about why I should do it. I, I think that book is just as relevant today as it was when it was written. Phenomenal book. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's obviously the um, the gold standard, I guess, if you will, in terms of inspirational books right. for this uh, market. So cash flow quadrant is uh, very relevant. Yep. So any uh, last important thoughts or advice on real estate investing? Uh, this is a big leap to take, but you know how rewarding it is when you when you make the right decision. And if you want to be in real estate and you want to invest, get out there and do it. You know, it's uh, you'll be nervous at first, but it'll become second nature and it's highly rewarding. Um, you just got to put one foot in front of the other and make it happen. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. And how can our listeners uh, get in touch with you to learn more about your business and investment opportunities? Well, the best ways, you know, you know, a couple different ways. You know, one is, of course, through our website, which is praxcap.com. That's short for Praxis Capital. That's the name of our company. Uh, the website is P-R-A-X. 
cap.com. Uh, and then, of course, uh, I spend a lot of time on biggerpockets.com answering questions, posted some articles to the Bigger Pockets blog. I've been on their podcast three times, so you can check out the uh, Bigger Pockets podcast show episode number three, number 76, and number 152. I was a uh, fortunate enough to be one of their first podcast guests, uh, which was pretty fortunate for me. And I think through all that, you'd probably get really sick and tired of hearing my story. (laughs) (laughs) Number three, I'm going to go back and listen to that one. That's great. You're on my maybe eighth or ninth show. I have to I have to check. Well, thanks for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. And um, thanks again for all your support for A Hero's Home. Thank you, Brian. Have Have a great weekend. Thanks for taking the time. You too. Thanks much. Catch you later. Thanks, Jim. I'm proud to be your host. I'm privileged to have served, and I'm grateful for all your sacrifices. Until next time. Because the flag still stands for freedom, and they can't take that away. And I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who Cause there ain't no doubt I love this